The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, guys, welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today we're going to do Back to Basics of TBI, or Traumatic Brain Injury. Today joining me is uh, the Aiden Dancy, one of our PZ, uh, PZR MPs. He's an Air Care RN, Peace Transport RN. He just holds a bunch of spots over here at the UMC. Also joining us today for the first time is Mr. Taylor Allen. By that I mean Dr. Taylor Allen. He's a third-year EM resident over here at our emergency medicine department, fixing graduate. And then uh, I'm Will Appleby, one of the AirCare CCPs and uh, educator for AirCare. So today, let's get down with it. Back to basis of TBI. So what is a TBI? It's an injury that affects how the brain works, simply. it's there's, Don't overcomplicate the definition. It's just simply that. There are multiple different levels of TBI. It manifests in many different scenarios and situations, uh, different events. Um, it costs 2.5 million ED visits annually. And accounts for 56,000 deaths annually in the United States. And uh, Taylor was telling me a little something before we just started here. $80 billion annually in the United States is what it costs. Is that right? For the CDC? That's what CDC is saying. So it, it's expensive. Big deal. Again, it, it's an all-encompassing diagnosis, but it, it can be manifest in a lot of different ways. So let's break it down for identification. So... For y'all, what makes you think, hey, this is a TBI, start putting you on your differential? Uh, obvious source of trauma. I mean, you know, it can come from anything. You look at athletic injuries, you look at MVCs, falls, um, and then that's kind of what clues you in. And then you kind of clue in a little bit further. Are you dealing with severe, mild, or moderate, right? Um, always you're looking at mental status. What does the patient look like? You know, are they awake? Are they talking to us? Are they confused? Um, any known loss of consciousness, questionable loss of consciousness, neuro deficits that you can appreciate, uh, may not be so, you know, outward, they may be more subtle than you would think, um, vomiting, you know, there's a whole host of things that kind of go into it, you know, in your general picture when you're first seeing this patient walk through the door or when you're pulling up on scene, whatever it looks like for you. They don't, uh, common misconception, they don't always associate with a spinal injury. So it's, we're just talking about your brain. That's all we're talking about. Um, spinal precautions, again, we'll get into in a minute, but it's, we're strictly talking about your brain. Right. I mean, I think that hits it basically all. I mean, the big thing is story, especially like epidurals and, and stuff like that. You got to take a really good history, make sure you're not missing some type of lucid period that you had before they arrived, and then you get back and, you know, somebody's back to complete baseline. Um, it's really a good history is pretty pretty important for picking up on a TBI quickly. Yeah. Especially those, talking about assessment, those neuro deficits, those subtle cues, sitting back, hey, watching how they move, do they appear drunk and they shouldn't be? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 9 a.m. I get there, there's some people yeah. that are alcoholics chronically and they stay, you know, that's like that. But if you're dealing with a 12-year-old that's just acting totally out of it at 10 a.m. and they got hit upside the head with a baseball bat, something, yeah. something's goofy. Yeah, it's just picking up those subtle things with the history. Yeah, and just pay attention a lot to what's the baseline for the patient. You know, you said 12-year-old. I think about, you know, younger kids. I think about the elderly. Um, you know, 
are they normally walking, talking, active? You know, if they're not, what is their baseline? Try to get that history too. That way you can actually judge their neuro deficits or their mental status change if there is one. You know, we wouldn't expect a 90-year-old bed-bound patient probably to be up walking, talking, but they happen to fall out of the bed in the nursing home and that was the call you get and that's the story you're told. Well, you know, we may not know what normal is. So try to get the best history you can in all circumstances and just kind of keep that in your in the back of your head when you're going through these or when you're seeing these patients and you're going through your assessment, you know, what is their normal, not just quote unquote normal. Yeah. I will say when you're thinking about it, you need to think about any like high risk, you know, alcoholics, anybody that has atrophy of their brain has space for things to move around when they hit it. They're going to be at higher risk. Anybody on antiplatelet, of course, you know, we all know that, but that's always something that's running through my head when I'm ever thinking about TBI before I even get to the assessment. Mm-hmm. You're talking about, you know, space for things to swell. Also get a good baseline, not only for the patient, but for you. So you can trend that assessment. Exactly. Hey, something changing. They having that slow subdural bleed. They sit in the ER for a couple of hours. Hey, I'm washing them to compensate or even 15 minutes. You got them from seen to the hospital. Hey, something's changing. Something's happening a lot quicker than it should be. Right. Those are the kind of things to pay attention to when you don't get the story. You, you know, it's just this unknown trauma. You know, we may not know what happened. There's no visible signs. Think about it a lot on our side and kids and maybe non-accidental trauma. One thing you got to think about, you know, anatomically in these kids is their heads are so massive usually. Yeah. Um, any fall, you know, it's the heaviest part of the body. Their body's usually going to turn in the head. So it's going to hit first and take the brunt of the impact. So, you know, you may not see anything right away, but like Will said, you could sit there and watch this patient kind of just slowly get a little bit more sleepy, more sleepy. They start to become nauseous and, you know, the injury may manifest itself over time when you may not have been thinking TBI initially. Absolutely. I mean, there's still a reason that neurosurgery is a lot of their clinical practice is still based on exams, not on imaging. And, you know, they trim those exams from you know, hour to hour, Q1 in the neuro and the ICUs. So I think that's stuff we can be doing as well. And I, I mean, if they're using it and they've been doing it for years and years and years, we should be doing the same thing. And that's all stuff we know, right? Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, like Will said, back to the basics. And that's what this one is kind of guided towards is exactly things we already know, but we just need to kind of reiterate because it is such a prevalent issue and things we see, geez, I would venture to say daily at some form or fashion it, this institution maybe two three four times a day saw so. two this morning so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes so how these manifest a lot of talk about mechanism uh blunt's usually the first one that comes to mind so blunt could be any number of things i hit my head on a a post of a car like baseball bat i mentioned crowbar i've heard all kinds of fun things you've seen a bunch over the years mm-hmm. um blunt could also be and you brought up kids they get hit once I always think of the textbook, you're in a car, you know, I've, I've got a little son at home and he gets hit in the side of his head. Well, or side of his body, his body gets hit first and then his head, then it, cause again, it's so big and floppy. Then it hits the concrete or the asphalt right after it. That's just as important as these, you know, four or five rib fractures to trend that TBI section of the, of the injury. Right. Um, worry about a couple of different things. Hemorrhage is the biggest one. I'm talking about neurosurgery involvement. Um, yeah. Again, epidural, subdural, subarach, intercerebral, all, all bad day, all trend. Some of them are worse than others. It's all in how they, how they, how they present. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. So, you know, I kind of 
broke things down on that just because again back to basics talking about presentation you know you hear about your your three main bleeds right you know an epidural subdural subarach we know subaracs are typically more spontaneous than they are traumatic but it's not to say that it can't be a traumatic cause um, epidural taylor alluded to it earlier um, you got to think about that initial loss of consciousness if there was one and then the patient's background acting you know essentially normal and then they start kind of declining again that would kind of point you towards an epidural bleed um, you also think about hemiparesis with these patients nausea vomiting is more prevalent in an epidural because it's a more sudden onset and more you know rapid influx of blood pushing against the brain um, subdural think about it growing slow right so it's not may not always have a loss of consciousness but you'll kind of see that steady decline in mental status and gcs and then you know as they decline you start to see other you know manifestations like seizures weaknesses headaches things like that um and then subarach you know you'll usually hear you know, the story of for medical reasons anyways that thunderclap headache or worst headache of my life came out of nowhere nausea, vomiting, they just can't get still because their head hurts so bad, those kind of things. So, you know, just kind of think about the differences. And like Taylor said, the main thing when you think about epidurals, make sure you're not missing that lucid period because now they showed up to your ER, or you're in the back of the ambulance and man, they look fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with this patient. Always kind of think about that and pair that with your mechanism. Yeah, I think a lot of that is just, you know, the between the bleeds is mechanism. You can get them all with different parts, but you got to really think of it, you know, if you got temporal trauma, I mean, you got to be really heads up on an epidural. And the way I always think about them is making it really easy is an epidural is almost more like an arterial bleed and a, and a subdural is more like a venous bleed because, you know, middle, men, men, middle meningeal artery is usually right on that temporal lobe where you get that break and then you got that rapidly expanded hematoma and the subdural is more the bridging vein. So you got more time which is why you kind of rapidly decompensate with that epidural. Oh, yeah, definitely. The other thing with subarachs to me, they, they tend to be just anecdotally, a lot of them are acceleration injuries. Whether an acceleration, talk about it literally is we're talking about it could be slowing down or speeding up either way. High-risk MVCs, highway speeds, those are the ones I think of where they get ejected out of the car and that kind of stuff, and they have that sheer stress across the actual vasculature. Those are the ones I see the subarachs that are, yeah, right. usually really really bad it could be different mechanisms but those are the ones i've typically seen in my career um speaking of acceleration injuries dai so diffuse axonal injuries not as common to me um what have y'all seen not as common but man it's probably some of the worst head injuries yeah. i've seen because you know you, you go in there and everybody's looking for that concave epidural type shape bleed on the CT scan or you're looking for that long track and subdural and then you're like man this doesn't look bad and then you really start looking at it and you're like wow this is awful and usually from just anecdotally again you know from my experience I feel like these patients tend to do the worst initially yeah. it's usually poor all the DAIs I've seen like you're saying it's all anecdotal but it's mostly people come in and they're you know GCS is terrible um, you're expecting to get a CT scan. There's like you say, a huge bleed, and these people have nothing. I mean, it, it looks normal, and then you just know you got a brain injury. And I think that goes back to neurosurgery. Like a lot of this is just based on exam. That's why it's so important. Right. Well, uh, 
medicine's turned so much toward numbers in the last 10 or 15 yeah. years where, hey, I got to trend vital signs or this lab value or what X, Y, and Z. And the brain is something you can't always do that. Right, right. Um, that, that's huge in TBI. You know, you should always be reassessing your patients no matter what's going on. But, right. And, you know, with these kind of injuries, a reassessment is huge and constant reassessment. You should never stop reassessing these patients because they can change quickly. Yeah. And for the worst, you can you can skirt around physical exam and a, and a lot of parts of medicine and and you treat numbers and do that. But th- this is the one where you, in my opinion, you absolutely cannot. This is you have to have good physical exam skills and and really be on top of reassessment. You got to put your hands on the patient. Absolutely. absolutely. So it's it's one of those definitely hands on activities there. Penetrating injuries, uh, open and depressed skull fractures, opening fracture. Um, to me, open fractures, yeah, they worry about them. Everybody gets weirded out first time they see brain. You know, that's pretty much classic everybody in medicine. <laughs> it's a little weird the first time, um, right. especially on the scene. Yeah, it may look bad. To me, open fractures aren't as bad sometimes. I'm still worried about infection, all that kind of stuff, but they got somewhere to swell. That's my thing. Right. right. Um, yeah, I mean, you got a, you got a homemade EVD. You know, you have somewhere to, to relieve the pressure. You got a pressure uh, offshoot. I mean, the big thing is I always think antibiotics and then, but you're not, yeah, you can still herniate, but uh, it's not as scary as, you know, a depressed skull fracture where you don't have anything, nowhere to go, essentially, just like you're saying. Right. Yeah, penetrating injuries kind of are what they are. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> it, it, I hate to put it that way, but, you know, they like Will said, they can look bad on the surface, but I'm not near as scared of or worried about a penetrating injury if I'm managing this patient long term because yeah. I can kind of predict where that's going. I can't predict, you yeah. know, an internal bleed that I can't see or see what's happening. So. Um, again, empiric antibiotics. Are we doing that now? Uh, you know, I don't know what the data says on it. I know that at our facility we, we are. I mean, when they hit yeah. the door, if they have any, I, I don't see. I would treat it essentially just like sepsis with the source, you know. I think everybody's doing broad spectrum. But yeah. yeah, just hitting them wide. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're usually vancrocept and flagell straight when, when we come in. Um, again, slow onset stuff. We're talking about subdurals. Something else I always like to pin on especially if it's MVC or it's trauma, right? A lot of times for people that amps them up, they've getting that adrenaline rush. They've never, this may be the worst day they've ever experienced, whether it's their injury or their family's injury. It's a family car wreck. You know, they're more worried about their kids or their family member or what have you. Um, heaven forbid it's a violent, you know, shooting, stabbing, whatever it may be, domestic. Um, that adrenaline wears off and then they suddenly decompensate. So again, keep on saying it, but reassess your patient. Um, make sure everybody gets looked at. That's the biggest thing from a pre-hospital standpoint. Don't just write somebody off. Yeah, there's maybe a really bad kid in the wreck, but, hey, make sure that second truck, hey, I need you to look at this. The mechanism is there. There, There's something going on. Obviously, triage your patients appropriately, but definitely take two seconds and look. Yeah, mechanism's always scary. There's a lot to be said about high-speed mechanisms and, and brain. They're just always there, you know. Yeah, again, it all kind of comes back to assessment, like we talked about earlier. If if that mechanism looks the part, you should make sure these injuries either fit the part or they check out, one of the two. Always lay your hands on them. Like Will said, you roll up on an MCI. It may not be you that gets to every patient, but you need to make sure you delegate and you're checking everybody out, especially, you know, 
you look at a windshield, you see a giant starfish pattern on the windshield, you know, everybody seems to be walking around fine. Well, that may be fine, it may be good, but just be sure you don't want that one to come back and bite you. Yeah. And speaking of slow insect, you got to also think about older people, you know, if they got signs of TBI, could they have followed them yesterday, two days ago, and they got a slow expanding subdural, um, that sometimes can get missed, you know, and they come in there, well, they're just confused. and. It happens in the ER, like, well, they got a UTI, and then finally somebody comes in and is like, well, yeah, they fell two days ago, and boom, there it is, you know. Yeah. It's just uh, something you always think about. Which brings us down to concussions, everybody's favorite hot topic these <laughs> days. Um, big thing in football, both NCAA, SEC here in the South, um, big thing in high school football now, all these concussion protocols. Just to speak to it briefly, um, there's a lot of different protocols out there, a lot of resources from different – several different mediums but um for me the biggest thing is loss of consciousness yes or no how long if it did happen and then get them to do either an okay sign see if you can break it and then see if they can balance um obviously vomiting is a big one but those three little things usually you can figure out hey what road do i need to go here how detailed we need to do the initial exam yeah Um, think about concussions i mean it's a lot of follow-up you know, we deal with the initial insult, you know, it, pair it with all other TBIs because you, if you're on scene, if you're dealing with these players or whatever it looks like, you know, you can't really get a CT scan right there to rule out other bleeds. And I'll just say this because I feel like this is an everyday practice for me. I don't know if it is for you in the ER. Somebody out there needs to hear this. You don't see concussions on a CT scan. Yeah. <laughs> it is usually a diagnosis of exclusion or from your history. Yeah. Um, just want to make that known and clear because I feel like there's one person out there that will listen to this that was like, man, I didn't know that. There you go. Just wanted to throw that caveat out there. But concussions are a lot of just repeat assessment. You're repeating the cranial nerve exam. You're checking balance. You're checking for nausea, constant headaches, things like that. Um, but – yeah, at the end of the day, everybody felt like there's a different protocol yeah. every five minutes, and every different entity has a different protocol for return to play, return to sport, you know. So. Yeah, there's not a good protocolized – I mean, there kind of is, but it's still, you know, in the disclaimers for all of them, it's used with physician discretion. You know, you can go into that SCAP-5 stuff for um, diagnosis, and then they have a step down um, and return to play, but it's all based on physician discretion, so – it's harder you to know. follow the flow sheets more than anything else. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yep. Even, even the ones that are in five different colors, yeah. I'm sitting there going, all right, how do yeah. I go this time today? And, and you, if this one looped back okay. three steps, you're like, yeah. oh, man, now, now i got a concussion. You know, so, this, is, <laughs> this is terrible. Definitely use the cheat sheets they give you. Help. <laughs> yeah. Help. All right, so we talked a little about physiology, talked a little about TBIs with that. Let's get into management. So we were talking before this. It's pretty much unchanged the last two or three years. Um the biggest thing is prevention of secondary injury. Is there – I don't know how to put it any other hey, simply. That's your goal here. Yeah. I mean, that with all TBIs, mild, moderate, you know, severe, your goal is to prevent secondary injury, you know, whatever that looks like. So, you know, initial management, just like any other trauma patient, ABCs first. A lot of the time, especially if these are severe TBIs, you're looking at GCSs, you know, less than nine, airways huge early airway, early breathing interventions, deal with circulation as needed. You never know. They could be isolated head. They may not. Um, don't get fixated. You know, Will was talking about 
penetrating head injuries earlier, don't get fixated on a GSW to the head or a depressed open skull fracture, yeah. and they may have this huge chest injury, so you still kind of have to bring everything else into play. So pay attention, ABCs first. Yeah, always ABCs. The next biggest thing that works secondary injury is preventing that hypotension. You've got a 35% mortality rate increase every time the patient gets hypotensive. Now, exactly. Hypotensive based off age population, again, pediatrics a little different than adults. Um, but to throw out a number, somewhere between 100 and 110 systolic seems to be pretty well the standard across the board. Um, I'm a big map guy. For me, map less than 65, yeah. less based off of what kind of meds they're on. Again, we're in Mississippi. There's a lot of people on a whole lot of antihypertensive meds. Mm -hmm. um, so if they live at a map of 85 every day, I'm going a little bit higher than systolic yeah. 110. Um, yeah. But hypoxia, hypotension, two biggest things. Um, spinal considerations. What? Let's just break the elephant in the room. How do y'all feel about boards? I think they're good to move patients. Yeah, that exactly. <laughs> that, that's all. Uh, yeah, that's it. They're good to get the, over to the bed, and then I want them off of them as soon as I can. Yeah, I think it, it's one of those things in EMS. Sometimes that's what you got to get them. You're in a ravine, you got to pull them up, whatever yeah. it is. C collar, yeah, okay. You got the venous return, um, making sure every circulation is going up and down evenly. There's not a whole lot of anything impacting perfusion, cerebral perfusion. Right. But the boards seem to do more harm than good. I mean, yeah. that's there. Yeah, use your board. I mean, if, you know, especially EMS guys and, you know, flying, I'm guilty of this sometimes. I'll leave them on the board a little bit longer. But typically it is, you know, I'm thinking about a short flight, short transport, and where did I have to come from? How far did I have to move them? Uh, what's it going to be like moving them in the ER? You know, if I can keep that time, you know, say 30, 40 minutes, if I'm anything longer than that, I go ahead and try to take them off. Yeah. as soon as I can but if I can keep it around that half hour window I'll sometimes leave them on yeah and from the, I mean the ER perspective when they get there you're doing a full assessment so you're rolling them anyway they should be off the board you know almost at arrival if, if you're if you can get them in the room so I mean it's not a big deal to me you know and then the C collar some people you know back and forth on that like you're talking about the venous return but I think you know a lot of these head traumas especially the sphere ones where you got poor GCS that you, you got to keep these people in, in C collars because yeah. you have you no idea. Yeah, you can't clear them that way. Yeah, you can't clear them that fast. And, you know, you have no exam, and absolutely. Now, once you get the imaging, we can you know, you can go down that rabbit hole with all the research and clearing them with, with imaging and a ton of patients. But I think in the pre-hospital period, you have to put a C-collar in these patients. Make sure these C-collars fit. You know, I can't yeah. tell you how many times either pulling up on scene or coming into the ER that – C-collar is too big, it's not doing anything, the patient can turn their entire head inside the collar, or it's three sizes too small, and there's no way they're getting any decent venous return from yeah. this because you're constricting Absolutely. everything in the neck. So, And I know, you know, you may not have 25 different sizes of C-collars, but do the best with what you can. And sometimes it may not be a C-collar, sometimes it's head chalk, sometimes it's taping them to that board, mm -hmm. um, improvise out in the, out in the world. Um, it's not always, great and perfect like it is in the four walls of the UMC ER but, um, where we have all these tools at our disposal exactly so just something to think about try, try to keep it midline best you can whatever way you got to make it happen yeah um, also if you got to keep them on the board to me especially an EMS stretcher or an outside hospital take the two seconds if you can lean the head of bed up I know for us in the aircraft we like to do it so we got more foot room honestly but uh, in the 135s but Put the head of the bed up, okay, y'all. It's all helping. Let gravity be your friend as far as venous yeah. return. So 
Um, kick it up. Something else, back to basics, simple, glucose. Brain's got to have some yeah. glucose, man. Know what their normal is. Again, are they diabetic and they live at 200? It's one of those things. Um, for kids, they chew it up fast. They get that adrenaline dump. Aiden, you see it all the time. Yeah. And, and, and glucose, just think you glycemia here. You don't want it too, you definitely don't want it too low and you really don't want it too high either. The brain likes a nice, even level of sugar yep. all the time. It doesn't like this, you know, it doesn't like that wave to try to ride. So, you know, now I'm not saying you need to start insulin infusions on your TBI patients <laughs> unless, you know, of course, other labs and presentation dictate. But, because um, I have seen DKA patients fall and hit their head. So it, it does happen. But, <laughs> just even keel on the glucose unless you're traumatized by dk then then maybe the insulin infusion okay yeah um again head of bed if they're not on a board 30 degrees if they're in a collar great but keep it at 30 degrees let everything fall float nice and even um entitled co2 can be your friend big time um especially severe tbis but even regular ones you're trying to reassess their neural function see hey what's their breathing like are they having that neurogenic breathing pattern are they getting worse are they getting better um what are y'all shooting for for anti co2 and somebody intubated what's your what's your goals 35 to 40 yeah um pretty much across the board hyperventilation's out it's just trying to keep the, yeah. on the low end of normal yeah so hyperventilation in, in the first 48 hours is pretty much taken out unless you know we're talking about impending herniation which yeah. i feel like we'll get to in a minute um we'll kind of break that down a little bit further but that should be really the only time you're purposefully hyperventilating these patients yeah 35 unless they're herniating then get after it so let's bring it down to cerebral perfusion pressure and icp <laughs> so cerebral perfusion pressure all that equation everybody learned yeah, medical yeah. school and paramedic school map minus icp mm-hmm. so anybody's got a tbi you assume it's bumped um, we got signs and symptoms of Cushing's. I've always been taught 20 is a good number to go with. Assume it, and then you got to have a map over that to compensate. So, whatever that may be, or however that may be, we don't all have wonderful EVDs present <laughs> wherever we go. Um, yeah. uh, Technically, get an EVD. I usually don't see them anymore. Yeah, they're usually <laughs> upstairs. Yeah, it's a, a procedure that's done on the way out the door yeah. you know, to the OR or the ICU. It would be time. awful nice to have it continuous when they can y'all get uh, can y'all do those? Nah, that would be nice. They're doing them in Europe. With these guys, <laughs> what I hear, but uh, they hadn't let us have that trigger finger yet. Mm-hmm. That'd be nice. Maybe, maybe <laughs> coming soon. Coming soon. All right, so ICP management. All right, so we got our ICP bump. They got a TBI. Let's say it's severe. You go on a car wreck. Uh, you've got a. Eight-year-old kid was ejected. Initial GCS is seven. You're going to intubate them, um, and they need something. They've got they're hypertensive for their age, so their blood pressure is 160. They're bradycardic in the 60s, 50s, somewhere in that ballpark. Mantol and hypertonic. So those are pretty much two standards, right? Right. Um, yeah. Um, so all current literature says, you know, still for impending herniation that you're concerned about mannitol is first line hypertonic is second now if you don't have mannitol hypertonic is fine um but you know mannitol per dose in kids it's one gram per kilo should be the same pretty much across the board um pay attention to your dosing pay attention to your concentration some bags are 
20, some bags are 25. So just kind of watch that, especially when you start really getting into the nitty gritty. Um, and then most hypertonic saline, at least what we carry here and keeping the ER, now y'all may do something different than adult ER, we carry 3%. Mm -hmm. We're not lucky enough to have 23.4 or nine or anything cool like that where we're only having this much. <laughs> but 3% um, at, you know, Pete's world again, come from me, three to five per kg. If it's impending herniation, I'm not worried about the three part, I'm going straight to five. Yeah, I mean, my everybody usually always in the pre-hospital setting is getting mannitol, um, and then usually if I'm concerned, I just I just stack two hundred in adults, two hundred fifty cc's, three percent right behind it. If they got any signs of yeah. cushion, you know, they're bradycardic, they've blown pupils, just going to try to get the sodium up. Um, I don't think there was a lot of difference. If they, I think there was a study that looked at it between mannitol. Three percent, seven and a half, all in the pre-hospital setting for, I think it was GCS less, less than nine and hypotension, and I think at six months there was no mortality benefit on any of it. So yeah. I think it's kind of dealer's choice right now. The only reason I get scared about mannitol is a lot of times they'll come into the ER and then uh, they'll get you know boats mannitol for because they're they're herniating, but then people won't think to replace it back. And then the you know these people be drop in liters of urine, and the next thing you know, you're chasing this renal injury. You're tracing else. this renal injury. You're tracing hypotension. So you're fixing one problem and possibly causing, you know, some hypotension somewhere. Which, you know, just like you're saying earlier, that's mortality, mortality, mortality. So you just got to be, you got to just be cognizant of what you're getting and what the patient's getting, and make sure you're not falling behind on anything. Um, yeah, and that's we like Taylor said. We don't think about it a lot in the ER, but I'm sure the ICU people are cringe yeah. with this. That's why they love hypertonic because they don't want to mm -hmm. be chasing SIADH and DI yeah. in the ICU, trying to hold sodiums at a normal level to keep this brain nice and happy. So, um, yeah, something to think about. And it's like he said, dealer's choice. Yeah, if they're herniating, you have to fix your problem that you have right now with mm -hmm. the tools you have right now. So you know you do what you have to do. But. Um, for me, fortunate enough, we have here, we have on the aircraft, we've got both mannitol and hypertonic. One of the little tricks I use, multi-system trauma, hypotensive, I'm trying to preserve their brain, they're actively getting resuscitated, they're getting hypertonic with exactly. me. Exactly. Because of exactly what you just yeah. said. I would rather them not risk that rebound hypotension, yeah. to call it that, yeah. um, while they're actively getting resuscitated because they've got some massive yeah. liver lack or something else that's fun. Yeah, I think I think there's some studies in the pre-hospital setting that are, are looking at that hyperosmolars and, and mortality outcomes. And I would be, by my limited reading, I would be more scared of the hypotension than I would be of the herniation, um, you know, miss, missing a dose of hypertonic before you got them to, you know, neurosurgical intervention or something. That hypotension is, I think, the killer. Oh, yeah. Real quick with hypotension or hypertension, with TBIs, you don't necessarily, unlike um, spontaneous ICHs, you don't necessarily want to get that blood pressure down. Absolutely not. No. That's a common misconception. Mm -hmm. A lot of people wig out, hey, I got a TBI, and he's got a blood pressure of 180 or 200. Oh, they need to go on cardine or a little yep. beta law, whatever regimen of junk you want to throw at them today, let them go. Yeah. Man, let let them. That, all that is is the body's natural response for collateral perfusion. Man, let let mm -hmm. that let that thing ride. Um, high normal. High normal. High normal is usually the phrase you see in all the literature. High normal right. BP for age. Yeah, I mean, if you start getting those astronomical BPs, there there's something there's something there's a physiological response driving, and it's 
most of the time people don't live at, at 230s, 240s. I mean, if they do, they probably got some lung problems for their flash point or edema. <laughs> or there, there's going to be another sign, and then, you know, you can probably figure that out. But a lot, especially in traumatic, I'd try to, you know, I, I don't necessarily like seeing cardine. People no. coming in on cardine, it scares me a little bit when you don't have scan. And, um, because I like it's just hypotension. Hypotension is the big scary monster in the room and all this. I mean, so if you if you do have to do it, I would rather I would rather use cardio where I can slow it slowly do it versus or even yeah you know some other agent that's not as long acting. Absolutely, like twenty it's milligrams much better than a push of labella. <laughs> and now I have to wonder if they're bradycardic from their brain herniation or or the law yeah. massive yeah don't don't Pile ask of a beta blocker yeah <laughs> that's true. Um, even. I've seen Esmolol used, but for the same reason. I know it's short-acting. Everybody's like, oh, great, it's short-acting. But, again, you're going to mask those signs and symptoms of that bradycardia. That's one of those first things. We talk about yep. herniation, the blown pupils. Pupils are something I always look at for everybody. You're trending them. You know, they're three and reactive and one, five, and two. And you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out, hey, I give mannitol or hypertonic, which one works better. But still that bradycardic thing, man, they'll, they'll do it real quick, and you can watch them. Yeah. Early indication. Very early indication. Reliable um, one. Another fun drug, again, we give pretty regular around here, is TXA. Yeah. Um, TXA has shown a lot of benefit, especially in recent studies, both the military and civilian world, um, doing real good benefits for TBIs. Yeah, I think TXA is like, uh, that's an interesting topic because you, you get into crash two and crash three and all that, and, you know, is there mortality benefits, 30 days, and then, what are the downsides of it? Does it have an upside? I think the biggest thing, just going into like crash two and crash three, you had statistically significant benefits and I think it was moderate or mild TBIs when they got it. And then there was no uh, mortality benefit when it was severe. Um, but, you know, you also look at it and there was, you, everybody everybody interprets those studies a little bit different. Um, the, what, what I took from it is, there's not doesn't seem to be a real downside, you know. So I mean, yeah. if you're getting even a little bit out of it, and then with no downside, <clears throat> I, I think it's I think it's okay. They, they'll say it's not indicated in the pre-hospital setting in some studies, but I don't know. It's it's a good drug. Yeah. Um, and the stamp trial, I mean, they, they, they kind of proved to that study of Pittsburgh that there's not really the VTE. That's what everybody, all the trauma surgeons upstairs, oh, they're gonna get VTEs. And I mean, I think. The literature is maybe coming out now that's saying that's not something to be super worried about. Yeah, and like Taylor said, the benefit really isn't in that severe TBI patients, the mild to moderate. So show mm-hmm. up GCS 8, you know, 10, 13, somewhere in that category. Still, you know, all the other indications within three hours of the injury, um, you know, you're highly suspicious of a TBI. You're not so much looking at the hypotension and tachycardia with this patient if it's a known TBI, but um, you won't really see that mortality change in a severe. And you're not going to give it to a mild, typically. So. No. You got somebody has got a GCS 12 or less to me. I'm like, all right, cool, TXA is on the workup. Yeah. We can talk about it. It goes in the algorithm for sure then. Definitely don't hold it if you have evidence of, you know, hemorrhagic shock somewhere else, blood oh, yeah. oh, yeah. that, that's you know, that's the thing. Don't ever feel bad for giving TXA is what I, is my takeaway on it. Um speaking of coags, coag reversals, big thing with TBIs, both uh, the medical side of the street with SEH and traumatics. So don't always know, hey, are they on something? Are they on cumin, that's everybody's favorite. 
um, but are they on one of the 10 A's or Perdaxa? Any any one of the different things. If you can find that out, great. If they've got it in their cell phone, they have another medical ID, and they've got their phone right there, and it says, hey, I'm on Zarelto. Cool. Guess what? You're getting the 5,000 K Center from me. Yeah. Um, again, co-agreversal early, better, better mortality, morbidity outcomes. If you can do point of care INR, PT, PTT, remember those 10 A's, you're not going to see as well. But outside hospital, it's one of those quick things. There's there's a couple of things I really want if you've got access to point of care labs or your labs you can get quick. One of them is sodium, so if i got to have hypertonic where I started. Um, coag, if you can get them. And then a CBC with a platelet count. Those are the things to me that really going to matter. Glucose, we're all going to do point of care, uh, capillary glucose anyway, but those are the three big things you get from a lab that would matter to me in a TBI. Yeah. Anything else y'all want to add to that? No, nah, you're just, you're looking for that INR, you know, below 1.4. Platelets need to be 75,000. Everybody wants to know, well, they hear those labs, well, what are we looking for? Those are the main things we're looking for. Yeah. Anything, you know, austere from that, we kind of start getting worried. And that's when we start pulling the trigger on these kind of drugs. Yeah. Only other thing on coag reversal is, um, and this is more of an emergency department thing. You got to think about dialysis patients, people on antiplatelet medications. You can get into the whole DDAVP for platelet uh, inhibition and, and trying to reverse that. And I think that's kind of, I know we're, we do a little bit of that and just something to kind of keep in your back pocket. Uh, yeah. Definitely one thing they've figured out through several trials now is if they've got a low platelet count, probably don't give them platelets. <laughs> yeah. It has yeah. a really bad mortality rate. So it's one of those things, hey, they got, and people ask, why, why, do they, why, do they, why do we care about platelets? It's a neurosurgery thing. Are mm-hmm. they going to go to the OR? Yeah. Um, are they going to tank them up? Are they going to try to figure mm-hmm. out, hey, how do I increase their playing account or make sure they're going to quiet? It's a risk-benefit thing for them of, hey, how do I pull that trigger? Um, yeah. One of my good friends a while back said, hey, if it's less than 100, I ain't going. Uh, less than 135 to 100, I'm going to think about it. Um, anything over that, okay, risk-benefit, we're going to really look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but – less than 100 for them especially around here but yeah it seems to be it no we ain't going um again you mentioned ddavp had some great outcomes mm-hmm. we're actually talking about adding the aircraft here it, again the big problem with ddavp is got refrigerated yeah um it's a logistical issue but seeing some really good tbis especially with the platelet counts mm-hmm. some good results so far um also, another talking about more drugs, antiepileptics. So, what's y'all's go to? What's y'all's dose? Let's just clear it up. I think Kepper's first line now. I know you know at UMC that's kind of what we go to. Foss was the big one for a long time, but looking at all the new literature, kind of studying up for this, and we already knew. But Kepper, especially in my world, Peds world, you know, I love my vitamins, vitamin R and vitamin K. Kepper falls into that one, so <laughs> yeah. we give that stuff a lot. And for us, it's. And really across the board, it's 40 per kg now um, with a max up to 60 per kg or a total of four and a half grams. Um, A lot of protocols are four and a half grams right out of the gate for adults and then that 40 to 60 for kids. Um, Especially if you're thinking anything, you know, moderate to severe. um, Some people will go ahead and dose it, especially if you have any concern for seizure activity at all. Um, Go ahead and hit them with that early. I see a lot of, I personally have seen a lot of benefit from it, given it early. Some people will say, I didn't do much, but that's, again, it's anecdotal. Yeah. I mean, on, on the adult side, I think we've, 
we've gone, we use Capra. Everything I say is, you know, people are using, seems like Foss was the big deal. And then I, I, I think they're probably pretty similar. Um, yeah. When you when you head to head study them, coverage is so much easier. I think the side effect profile is better. You don't have to trend fast levels. Yeah. Um, so we we've gone to Kepra. Um, with these TBIs, a lot of times the dose that I've been seeing is about at 1.5 to 2 grams, unless you have seizure activity. If you have any concern for seizure, then we probably we load them with the status dose, or I do, yeah. and then you at least get the status dose in them to make sure you're taking out some any subclinical status because anybody with a TBI it's hard to get a you know good focal I mean yeah. a good neuro exam on especially somebody with antibody you know give them rock yeah. anybody I give rock to is automatically get antibody you can't and it's, it's proven I forget the number I want to say it's somewhere around 10 to 15 percent of uh, TBI patients or severe TBI patients have non-convulsive seizures yeah so you're not I mean you, mm-hmm. you'll see the nystagmus if you're really looking but again I'm going to bounce the aircraft I used to fly not all the time um, or, hey, there's 15,000 things that are going on. I may not catch that brief yeah. period of nystagmus. Um, I would rather load them than not. So, yeah. you know, somebody 20 per kilo, 40 per kilo, 60 per kilo, whatever your institution or uh, center is doing. But. Yeah, your protocol is your institution because that's yeah. one thing. I mean, these doses can be all over the place. <laughs> they really place can. To place. Neurologist and neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. they may want a different dose. So just whatever your protocols are and – Will brought it up, so I'll pull my soapbox out for a second. If you paralyze these patients, please pay attention. You know, you can't see seizure activity once you've paralyzed them, at least not, you know, outward seizure activity. They're not going to shake their arms, right? But things you can pay attention to, you know, rapid heart rate changes, um, you know, blood pressure changes that are unexplainable, things like that. So I'm like, Will, if you're getting a paralytic, you're go ahead and you're going to get loaded for me just so I can go ahead and at least try to mitigate that. And then I'm going to be pretty heavy with the sedation. Yeah. I know our neurosurgery colleagues will get upset by that, but is what it is for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Propofol, cut it off. Yeah. They love that. Easy on, easy off. Never said. They, uh, really with TBIs, it pretty much debunked the whole ketamine thing. We can yeah. bring it up. Yeah, now, that's. The whole hypertensive thing. But I will say this, that, Ketamine to me can mask some things. Again, that rapid heart rate, watching Cushing's triad, that sympathetic response you get from giving mm-hmm. the drug. Yeah. Don't forget about what you're doing as far as your side effect profile and what you can also mask those symptoms you may want to see later. Right. Um, Speaking of ketamine, we didn't really talk about it, but I'm, I'm missing the hypoxia. I think a big thing of when you're intubating these patients when talking about the hypotension, that's not a bad agent. That's why a lot of people stay away, just like you're talking about, there was this concern for ICP spike and all this, but it's a pretty neutral agent. You know, you might actually get some hypertension when you intubate these people instead of when you RSI them, you know, with Tomidate and Rock or something, you get that transient drop in blood pressure, and and that's, you know, that's bad. So uh, ketamine's a great agent. I wish we used more of it for induction. We're kind of stuck in our ways, but... Um, that's definitely a, a good agent to use. Yeah. It's my whole, whole point. Brings up another point. Push those pressures in these patients. Absolutely. TBIs, trauma. I'm a big vasopressin person. I, yeah. I, love, I love it. Give it like candy. Um, but again, something to make sure that pressure doesn't drop. Don't have an incidental hypotension while you're trying to intubate them. Right. Um, ketamine, if they don't have that, they haven't already dumped that sympathetic response. Um, it's not a prolonged thing. It just mm-hmm. happened again. Younger population, I'm, I, yeah. I have no problem with ketamine. Ketamine, it's all about how you dose it and how how you mm-hmm. get it. So, 
Yeah. Um, can be a great adjunct. Lead us into glucose again, like like Aiden, like you said, making sure it's normal. Don't yeah. don't try to go too high. Don't let it go low. Remember to check it and just be cognizant of it. Um, and last but not least, something we all forget and yeah. we're yep. really bad about it in the ER is temperature. Yeah, um, it's a big deal. Everybody wants to expose them. I want to see every little thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, they got a head injury. Let me look at their back. Make sure they're not stabbed. All those, all those yeah. double check boxes you want to make, but wrap them back up. Yeah. Make sure they are. But if they're intubated, put a esophageal temp probe down on. Be rechecking their temp. If they do spike a fever, treat it. Yeah. Um, you can give Tylenol IV now. It works great. It's pretty readily available pretty much mm-hmm. across the world. Um, it seems like anyway, if nothing else, rectal will get that fever down. Don't let it spike. Yep. Don't, don't be that guy that's not going to treat the fever in the field or in the back of the helicopter either. If you've <laughs> yeah. got this complex patient, all these things going on, you know, treat your patient yeah. from one end to the other. It's easy to forget. You know, you get all that. You're caught up with the blood pressure and managing the You don't want to mess all that. And then you kind of – it's a forgotten vital sign in the, in the critical patient, which and it's probably one of the most important. Yeah. And you just got to really make yourself think about it. Yeah, and the brain, just like it likes a normal glucose level, yeah. it loves 98.6. <laughs> yeah. That's where it wants to live. So any deviation either way, it's not happy with. Cool. So let's break this down real quick, do a down and dirty of this. So when you're talking about TBIs, first things, recognition or high index of suspicion, right? So figure out the mechanism. Taylor, you hit on it. Great. History. Know what it is. Know what the secondary injury, if there's a secondary injury there. Or what we're trying to do prevent is the big secondary injury. So right. hypotension, hypoxia. Um, how do we prevent that? Spinal considerations apply it to where you're at. Um, again, if you got to use a board, use a board. The severe TBIs, the GBS, GCS less than nine. Probably need to get away from a C collar. Um, make sure you make that happen. Double check their glucose. Keep it normal. Head of bed. Hit them up, get them 30, 30 degrees, make your life easier if you're tubing them too, give you a better view. If you're tall like me and Taylor, you got you got that problem. Yeah. The head of bed position, and that just makes me think about, you know, the basic stuff that I think we forget about a lot of the times, you know. And nurses and EMTs, if you guys are listening to this, you may not be able to push all these drugs or without an order to do something, but there's a ton you can do for a TBI patient if you mm-hmm. suspect herniation right off the bat. And you know, head of the bed up, like Will said, neutral, midline, make sure you have good venous drainage, hyperventilate that patient. I know we didn't touch on that. We said we were going to, so I guess we'll hit it again now. We don't normally routinely hyperventilate these patients, but in presence of impending herniation, you're trying to drive that CO2 down. I want to entitle CO2 down around 25 to 30 if I can get it there. So get on that bag, go to town. This is the one time I will tell you to bag like a brand new nurse that's never squeezed the bag before. Um, any other time we'll have another discussion that's another podcast later that I can talk about bagging but in this case go to town for a little bit um, while you are getting help to get the medicines you need to get sedation all these other things sorry squirrel carry on so once you once you get past the medic man it's all hypertonic and all those other things back off go back to that normal yeah. entitled CO2 35 to 40 that's what we like to get say. it back to 35 yeah, yeah. 35 is <laughs> our favorite number um ICP management, again, tuition stride, so hypertensive, bradycardic, irreversible respirations, uh, standard across the board. You see it, think about ICP management. So people changes, think about your people changes. Pupillary uh, changes, one side blowing the other. Um, again, 
bilateral pinpoint, I would pinpoint pontine. So where is it at? And also tell you a little bit about where the bleed is, um, but also, hey, we got to manage this ICP now. Um, mannitol hypertonic. So mannitol, one gram per kilo. Peds, so all are doing five cc's per kg for hypertonic. For 3%. For three, uh, yeah, for 3%. Um, if you've got 23.4%, that's great. Uh, adults get the 30 milligram, 30 cc vial. Yeah. Make sure you push it slow. Uh, Dr. Griggs would be super happy for me to say push it slow. Sure. It's over five minutes. Not like think yeah. about over five minutes, like give it over five minutes. Yeah. Um, TXA, great studies out. Bolus one gram per kilo. I mean, one gram, excuse me, total. And then uh, some studies are doing the two gram IV push. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing great results. It's not everywhere yet. We're starting to do it here. Um, just kind of depends on the provider dealing with the patient. If you do it, do it quick. Don't yeah. sit in TXA. Yeah, under that three-hour window. Yeah. Co-agriversal, get an INR, uh, figure out if they're on Zarelto, if they're on one of the 10 A's, on Pradaxa, any of those fun things. Reverse them if you can. Try to mitigate that bleeding if there's a bleed present. Seizures, pretty much Kepper's way to go. If you got FOS, yeah. great. That's if that's all you got. But Kepper's relatively benign. Side effect profile is yeah. great. Don't have to worry about possible hypertension or some of the other side effects with phosphanitolin. Um, if you need the FOS, I mean, if you, Kepper's not doing it and they're actively seasoned, you know, obviously yeah. go down your line. FOS, propofol. Once you're in your status pathway, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, if you're Kepra talking about is first, yeah, so. just prophylaxis, I, th- I think Kepra's right. So we're just make sure we're saying do not, it's not a yeah. biblical thing that shall not give <laughs> yeah. FOSS. Yeah. If you need to give FOSS to stop the seizure FOS. and you don't have Kepra, by all means, yeah. please. Yeah, uh, platelet count CDP down the street, it's coming. Uh, platelet count's low, think about it. Good, good outcomes in those studies. Biggest thing I want to say there is don't give platelet infusion for low platelet count, yeah. Always remember these people go, you know, there's coagulation of, of traumatic brain injury. It's, uh, it's It releases all these inflammatory markers, and then just down downstream, maybe if you're holding the patient for a while, it has it, and that has other, you know, sources of hemorrhagic shock. You, you got to think that these patients can end up coagulopathy. You know, so just maybe if you got tags or somebody starts bleeding, just, just remember that can happen. Um. Talking about numbers, hypotension is the big one we want to stay away from. Adults try to keep systolic around 100, 110 minimum, depending on what kind of history they've got. If they got a history of hypertension, obviously it might be a little bit higher. Um, we let them ride with permissive hypertension. High and normal is the best way I think I've, I've heard anybody put it, honestly. Yeah, high um, normal. Let it, let it ride. If it's 180, let it be. Yeah. 280, okay. Yeah. <laughs> then we got to talk. Yeah. Easy problem. Then you got a heart rate problem. Yep. Um, avoid hypoxia at all costs. Intubation. Um, they got to be on. Typically, these patients go straight to tubes. They don't do BiPAP or anything else. Yeah. And they do high flow if they use your apneic oxygenation here. Yeah. Intubating these patients. You know, a lot of pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation. Pay attention to your blood pressure. Optimize perfusion when you're intubating these folks. Right. If you have a critical patient that you think might end up desat, and you might just want to go ahead and hit the airway first, and that way you yeah. avoid any of that. Um, trying to sit on it and get away from the tube, you just got to be real careful about it. Last but not least, don't forget temperature. It's a yeah. thing. Wrap them up. <laughs> yep. Um, or if it's Mississippi heat, which is fixing to come, it's, let's 
It's coming on here pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the AC on high every day of the yeah. week. Pack the groin, pack the armpits, all the fun things, ice packs, but you can cool them off. Yeah. EMS, folks, you know, this kind of goes without saying, but think about where you're going when you pick these patients up. Um, just like you, you know, if you've got a STEMI, you're going to cath lab. Where is my cath lab? These patients need a neurosurgeon. They need an NSICU. Um, you know, if this is a critical patient and you need to go to the nearest ER, that's one thing. But if you've got a little time, they're stable. You know, they need to go where their definitive interventions are going to take place. So is it an adult patient? Is it a peds patient? And, you know, transport accordingly. Yeah, I don't do a bunch of transport. But on that, I would say if you think this patient is going to need to be intubated at some point, I'd probably, instead of intubating the field, I'd probably stop at a hospital. That way you can really get all the resources there so you miss any of this and then maybe get back on the road because hey, you just don't want to mess up any little bit. You don't want to take a chance at hypotension, hypoxia, anything. So don't, you know, trying to get one of those centers, make sure you get somewhere that can take care of them well and then get them back on the road if you have to. Local ground folks, I mean, most people in Mississippi are good about this anyway. This is yeah. that patient that you probably want to call for an aircraft, yeah. um, you know, capable of handling these patients. This is something that probably needs a little bit higher level of care. Not to say that, you know, our local medics don't do a great job, but, you know, if the resource is there and you can, yeah. utilize it. So. This is a lot about, you need a lot of resources to, to do this properly and 100%, which is what you want to do. Definitely. Guys, appreciate you coming on today. It was awesome. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. We'll have you back. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah. Yep. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.